the National Archives podcast series, The Ancestors Lecture, Germanology, How Genealogy Can Change History. Right, good afternoon, thank you. Uh, now, the instructions we were given for this says that um, you've got to explain what each of these slides show because it's being, this is being broadcast on the internet. Um, so, in fact, I thought I had a clever idea last night. I put the pictures on my website as well. So, if anyone out there is listening and wants to see the slides, which I'm talking about this afternoon, it's on my website, which is www.antonyadolf.co.uk, and then follow the links to German. Now, the first slide shows, then, the title of this talk, which is Germanology, and it adds how genealogy can change history. I put that there to encourage people not to leave early, actually. Germanology is the study of Henry German, the Earl of St. Albans, a 17th century statesman and his immediate family. German's dates are 1605 to 1684. And in fact, he received two titles during his long and eventful life. He was made Baron German of St. Edmundsbury in 1643 and Earl of St. Albans in 1659. He also became a Knight of the Garter in 1672. There's a rumour that Louis XIV wanted to make him a duke in France. But that never happened. I never know, I've never known whether it's actually a true story or not. Still, it wasn't bad for someone who was in fact the second son of a family of near Suffolk gentlemen. I've been studying Henry German since the late 1980s, and last December I published the first ever book about him, which I called Full of Soup and Gold, The Life of Henry German. The term Germanology is one that I've made up. You sometimes hear about people claiming to be the world's leading experts in something or other. In fact, I used to work for a firm of genealogists who claimed to be the world's leading genealogists. Well, I don't know about that, but I think I can say, without fear of too much contradiction, that I am currently the world's leading Germanologist. <laughs> However, if I'm successful and enthuse other people in studying the life of this extraordinary and amazing man, I'm more than happy to yield that title to someone else. Now, you sometimes hear people saying that history and genealogy don't mix. Of course, that's not true. But the fact remains that there are still some historians who think that we genealogists are a lesser species. We're obsessed with personal details. We're unable to grasp the wider picture. We're pests, actually. You simply crowd out the archives and stop proper historians having a seat. Now, needless to say, I don't agree with that view. If it weren't for genealogists, archives, even the great national archives here, would have far fewer users and probably wouldn't be as well-resourced as they are. And the obsessive quest for detail, of which we're all entirely guilty, isn't just a worthwhile pursuit in its own right. Because sometimes, genealogists like us can unearth details that can simply force historians to change their minds. So, this is um, slide number two. Now, who, who was this man? And I'm showing a slide of Henry German in his full regalia, which sums up the publicly acknowledged achievements of his lifetime. Nice to see him there, actually, in the National Archives. First time he's probably been seen here for a very long time, if ever. Conventional history, conventional history tells us that Henry German was a 17th century courtier who spent most of his life in the service of Charles I's queen, Henrietta Maria. He was known to have taken part in the army plot of 1641, whereby a group of officers plotted to bring the king's army in the north down to subdue parliament just before the Civil War. 
the plot failed. German was found out and he fled to France. He joined the Queen when she went to exile in Holland and they came back together to take a surprisingly active part in the Civil War, raising their own army in Yorkshire and then marching south to join the King at Oxford. In 1644, when the war was nearly lost, Henrietta Maria fled to France and she took German with her. Their home in Paris was in the Louvre Palais. I knew I was going to get that wrong, it's a tongue twister. They lived in the Louvre in Paris. Which is rather exciting. When you go to the Louvre nowadays, you never think of English queens living there, but Henrietta Maria did live there um, with this man, German. And he was widely accused at the time, and quite unjustly, of fattening himself up on the Queen's money while the rest of the royalists were left starving. After the Restoration in 1660, German served as ambassador to France. He became the leader of England's Freemasons, and he also served as Charles II's Lord Chamberlain. The picture here shows him painted by Sir Peter Lely, wearing the insignia of the Order of the Garter, which Charles II gave him in 1672. And the white stick he's carrying is his wand of office as Lord Chamberlain. Now, if you think the picture's slightly odd, that's for a reason. Lely was a very busy painter. And like many fashionable portrait artists, he only painted people's faces from life. The bodies were painted by his students, usually using much younger, you see what I mean, don't you, using much younger models. Therefore, when you look at portraits of famous people, or indeed of ancestors of yours, or they might be one and the same, you'll often get the slightly disturbing juxtaposition of quite literally an old head on young shoulders. <laughs> German here has certainly got the legs of a young man, as you can see. But his face does look old and very serious and almost as if he was in pain. And he probably was when he was sitting for his, sitting for his portrait because he suffered from terrible gout. He also spent many years poring over his desk in candlelight, writing and ciphering letters both on his own behalf and on behalf of the Queen of England. And as a consequence, by this time he'd gone almost completely blind. He died 12 years after this portrait was painted as a contemporary poem describes him, full of soup and gold. If you look German up in many of the histories, most, in fact, of the histories of the 17th century, and in many of the biographies of Henrietta Maria herself, you will find him. He's usually mentioned about three times, twice in passing, and once to tell us that he was, quote, Henrietta Maria's fat major domo, or some such phrase. And it usually mentions that Pepys repeated a rumour that German and the Queen had secretly got married. And that, invariably, is all you'll read. An interesting character then, but perhaps nothing special. There's a much-respected guide on how to become a writer that lists various topics to be avoided like the plague. And included amongst these, explicitly, it said, as I read it, interesting 17th century aristocrats. Now, the mainstream publishers that my agent approached for this book seem to feel exactly the same. 17th century noblemen, especially those of whom very few people have heard, are simply not a good commercial proposition. You might therefore be wondering why on earth I decided to publish a book about Henry German, let alone write about him and research him in the first place. And indeed, you might be wondering why you're sitting here listening to talk about him at all. Well, the answer to the last two questions, I hope, will become clear. As to why I published this book, I did so for several reasons. First, I did it because I could afford it. It sounds brutal, but I'd never advise anyone to invest money in publishing that you couldn't afford to lose if the book's never sold. However, the economic pros and cons I discovered of, of, of publishing a smallish edition of a book 
are very different for private individuals like me, or indeed you, and big commercial firms. Basically, you don't need to sell as many, anything like as many books, in order to make, make an economic sense. And of course, more importantly, I published this book really for the same reason that I researched it and wrote it, which is because I had absolute faith that the subject matter, this person here, Henry German, was intriguing and colourful enough to make the project work. Now, I'm going to give you slide three. So, I'm now showing two pictures side by side. One is Henrietta Maria as a young queen, and the other one is German, the chap you just saw before, but this time as a young man. They're both from engravings of portraits by the leading artists of Charles I's court, Sir Anthony van Dyck. My journey started when I discovered Henry German in the branches of a family tree that I was researching. German came from a long-established family of Suffolk gentry, seated, as they used to say, at Rushbrook, not far from Bury St Edmunds. They were a moderately interesting lot in family history terms. As you work through the 16th century, they start appearing at court and getting involved in Elizabeth I's wars. And towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, German's father was quite closely embroiled in the rise and fall of the Earl of Essex. But when Henry German comes on the scene in the 17th century, things really hot up. Now, of course, as a genealogist, my interest was more than piqued by that throwaway line, and he may have married Queen Henrietta Maria. If it was true, I could put an equal sign next to Henry German's name on the family tree and add the name of Queen Henrietta Maria. And I'm sure, as genealogists like me, you can understand exactly where I was coming from on that one. So I started looking for evidence beginning, of course, with Samuel Pepys's diary. Now, Samuel Pepys writes unequivocally in his diary in 1662 that her being married to my Lord of St. Albans is commonly talked of, her being the Queen and Lord St. Albans being Henry German here. Of course, Pepys also says that he believed the story for certain, but we know that he was one of the biggest gossip mongers of his age and not entirely reliable. I also examined the biographies of Henrietta Maria herself, and I knew that German had been in her service for 44 years. And the fact that he's hardly ever mentioned in biographies of her just made me pretty suspicious. But it was when I read a biographical entry for Henry German in Joseph Gillow's Dictionary of the English Catholics that my genealogical hackles really went up. Gillow stated that the rumour of their marriage existed. But then he wrote that they could not possibly have got married because... At her funeral in the Cathedral of Saint-Denis in France, the prelate who gave her funeral oration described her as a, a woman of exemplary piety and so devoted to the memory of her martyred husband, Charles I, that she couldn't possibly have married someone else. I'm going to read you the offending passage. One sentence in Bossuet's funeral oration is sufficient to brush it aside. Great Queen... Well do I know that I fulfil the most tender wishes of your heart, but I celebrate your monarch, that's Charles I, that heart which never beat but for him. Is it not ready to vibrate, though cold in the dust, and to stir at the sound of the name of a spouse so dear, though veiled under the mortuary pall? Don't you love that phrase, couldn't possibly, which is so often used by people who really couldn't know one way or the other. Here Gillow is saying couldn't possibly. Now we all know as family historians, don't we, that people and families very seldom did what they were thought to have done or supposed to have done. That stern or sweet little old grannies often turn out to have had very wild and reckless younger days. You don't look to obituaries, especially those read out in cathedrals for members of royal families, for evidence of anything they really got up to when they were younger. 
Just think of the speeches given at the funerals of Princess Diana and indeed Princess Margaret, and you'll see what I mean. The words I've just quoted were spoken at the funeral of a venerable, dead, dowager queen, the aunt of the ruling monarch in France, Louis XIV. She'd spent part of the last couple of decades living in a convent. But before then, she had been a middle-aged woman. And before then, she had been the impetuous young girl, you can see here, the young princess in Van Dyck's portrait. And what she may or may not have got up to when she was that age is certainly not something you'd expect to find out from a funeral oration. Now, to be fair, Gillow took his view for a very definite reason. He was a Catholic, and he was at great pains to defend Henrietta Maria, who was a Catholic princess, against many of the criticisms that had been levelled against her unjustly, simply on the grounds of her religion. For Gillow to have made all that effort and then told his Victorian audience, oh, by the way, she ran off and married her equerry, would have rather defeated the point. Gillow needed Henrietta Maria to have behaved in an exemplary fashion. And so for him, she really could not possibly have married Henry German. Now, I found that quote from Gillow in the library of my university about 20 years ago. And it was realising how flawed his argument was that made me really want to find out more about German. It was a genealogist's quest for detail. And I suppose you could say a genealogist's scepticism for the established facts that started me off down the long road that led to me writing this book. Next slide. Right, I'm now showing two pictures side by side. On the left is Henry German as a young man, which is the same one you've just seen in the previous slide. And on the right is a portrait of Charles II at about the same age. If German and Henrietta Maria had really got married, it would have been after January 1649 when Charles I, her husband, was executed. Now, I ended up drawing my own conclusions about the marriage. I don't think they did get married, but I can't prove that. However, the stories about their intimacy that led to the rumours of the marriage went back a lot further to when they really were young people in the 1620s. And when you look in the original sources, you will find that there were stories that they may have slept together while Charles I was still very much alive. And in fact, there is no shortage of stories that it was German, not the king, who was the real father of Charles II. Of these things, there is also no firm proof. But the circumstantial evidence is much stronger than it is for the marriage. I genuinely don't know whether Charles II was, the, was biologically a Stuart or a German. It's certainly possible, and it's perhaps likely. But regardless of the truth, here's a thought. Throughout the lives of German and Charles II, they both knew that everyone out there had heard stories linking them together as father and son. Not surprisingly, neither man is ever known to have commented on this during their lives. But it must surely have affected the way they treated each other. And that is significant when you realise just what a major part German played in getting Charles II restored to the throne in 1660, and then in the polit political history of his entire reign. Now look at these two. You see what I mean, don't you? It's rumour and gossip, coupled with the fact that German and the Queen were incredibly close. That's all we have to link these two men together as father and son. That they actually look similar, from my point of view, is just a happy coincidence. But it could actually be a very significant coincidence. As my research into German progressed, I discovered many more things about him and his relationship with the Stuarts than had ever been thought about before. It soon became clear 
that I really could rewrite his life story. Now, that wasn't such a very big deal. The task had been attempted by a clergyman called the Reverend Sydenham Harvey about 100 years ago. He collected together a lot of notes about Germain, which he published, but he never attempted to form them into a biography or to draw any real conclusions. There was also a fairly short entry in the Dictionary of National Biography that was pretty dismissive, really. When I heard that the Dictionary of National Biography was being overhauled and rewritten as the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, I approached them and I applied to rewrite German's biographical entry. And to my surprise and pleasure, they agreed. I submitted a completely new entry based entirely on my own research and conclusions. And to my amazement, despite it being radically different to the old one, they accepted it. Most of the research I did couldn't be based on published histories because, as I said, very few published histories give German much of a mention. Now, we know, don't we, as good genealogists, that we should be relying, in any case, on original sources. In my case, I had very little choice but to do that. So I did spend a fair amount of time examining original sources in the British Library and other archives, including here, um, and some sources in France and Ireland, which I couldn't get hold of, I had searched for me. I also examined endless volumes of printed original records, such as the calendars of state papers and the volumes of the Historic Manuscripts Commission, via the fantastic interlibrary loan system. It would have been virtually possible, actually, to have written the book without the interlibrary loan system. I was a student in Canterbury at the time, with very limited free time when libraries were open. There was only very little money. Without the interlibrary loan system, I don't think I'd ever have managed to gather together enough material to make this book work. Now, the next, the next slide here shows St. James's Square in London, not as it is now, but as it was when German finished it, as a fully unified classical square with a fully unified classical facade. Now, in the programme you were given today, it says that German was founder of the West End. Now, that's not my claim. That's what it says in the Survey of London's volume on St. James's Westminster. Now, this chapter of German's life had been very well researched, but when it was, German's biographical background was very sparse, and you are left with the impression that the writers of the Survey of London must have wondered how, and indeed why, German, of all people, ever came to be the man who founded the West End. There are, in essence, two reasons. First, because he was so closely to attached to Henrietta Maria and Charles II, German was one of the leading figures behind the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Part of his efforts entailed raising enormous personal loans from Venetian and Dutch merchants for the royalist cause. Now, in 1660, Charles II inherited a virtually bankrupt throne, and he couldn't possibly repay German in cash. Instead, he gave him the leases of the rough fields that stretched north and northeast from the Palace of St. James's. It was here that German built this great square, St. James's Square, with all the streets around it, including German Street, which is now famous for its shirt shops. That's another tongue twister there, it's shirt shops. He also built the Church of St. James's, which you can see very clearly in that engraving there, which is still there now. He built it largely at his own expense, and he fought a long battle with the ecclesiastical authorities, the Church of England, uh, to have the area made into an independent parish. The area that German developed is encompassed today roughly by Piccadilly, which is running along north of St. James's Church there, um, Pall Mall, which is, you can't see down here, um, Regent Street over on that side, and Green Park on this side. He also developed further leaseholds in Soho, creating much of the area as it is today. Following his example, many other developers started acquiring and building on adjacent land, and thus the West End grew. German's great achievement in all this wasn't just building these squares. It was choosing to build them 
in a new classical style, style that was considered rather avant-garde still in Protestant England. His love of classical architecture is traceable back to Henrietta Maria herself, whose mother, Marie, Queen of France, was a member of the Medici family of Florence, who pretty much pioneered the Renaissance there and were certainly great champions of reviving the old classical style of Roman architecture. Henrietta Maria also employed Inigo Jones, who was England's pioneering classical architect, and German also learnt from his relationship with Inigo Jones. As I've argued in my book, St. James's Square and its surrounding streets were both a money-making scheme for German, but also a rather grand embodiment of his political theories, the aggrandizement of Britain, and especially the aggrandizement of the Stuart monarchy, the sense of social unity created by unified classical design, which you can see here, was an embodiment of the unity German wanted to see the, the Stuarts impose on the people of Britain. Next slide. I'm now showing a slide showing German in his um, robes again, which you've seen before, and also the cover of my book. Now, the conclusions I've come to in this book about German's political importance are simply what became obvious through my studies. It became clear that German had not so much been discounted by historians as never actually taken into account in the first place. In fact, thanks to his rather unique position in relation to Henrietta Maria and Charles II, German was an immensely powerful man who exercised a huge influence on the domestic and international politics of this country for a long period. Let me just give you some quotes. He was looked upon by the whole court and everything approved done by him. But that was in 1641. Premier minister in the management of all his majesty's greatest and most secret affairs. That's 1653. A man without any office, yet entrusted with the, sick, with the king's most secret affairs. That's 1678. Each of these many such references, taken out of context, looks like a one-off remark. And each has been individually either dismissed or ignored before. It was only when I put together all the references to German, once I tried, in fact, to write a biography of him, that I saw a pattern emerge that nobody had seen before. In fact, from the late 1620s right up to the 1680s, that's about 50 years, German was one of the most powerful and influential men in Britain. And not only did German have power and influence in great quantity, but it transpired that he had a very clear, persistent vision of what he wanted to do with them. In a nutshell, he did all he could to promote the cultural and political cooperation of England and France, partly, of course, as a means for his own self-aggrandizement, but also, and without any doubt, because he desired passionately to see England and France the countries of birth of Charles II and Henrietta Maria, respectively, prevail as the dominant cooperating powers in the world. This means that all the published histories of the central 50 years of the 17th century have completely missed one of the most important keys to understanding why many of the things happened, happened the way they did. Well, that's my modest claim, anyway. I'd like to say very, thank you very much to Simon Fowler for giving me the opportunity of giving this talk. And I say it is the first time German has been talked about in a, an eminent public institution for a very long time. Um, and I'd also like to just summarise by saying that this is a very, I think, a very clear case of how a genealogist's investigations into a particular family line, and ultimately into just one man, has shown the historians that they don't always get it right. Our approach does work, 
Genealogy can and often does rewrite history. All of you have probably overturned your own family stories. You've corrected long-held family beliefs. And you've probably discovered long-buried secrets in your own research. Often, such discoveries won't overturn and rewrite the history of Britain. But once in a while, they just might. Thank you. This event was recorded live on February the 22nd, 2007, at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Anthony Adolf as part of Ancestors Afternoon. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.